war. We have no choice. We have to do it with the adversaries we have out there. We have, uh, I call it the super duper missile. And I heard the other night 17 times faster than what they have right now. You heard the Commander-in-Chief, Donald Trump, there boasting about his new toy. It's a sign of how things are getting serious on the geopolitical front, which could indeed spark a new arms race between the world's two great superpowers, China and the US. The rhetoric is certainly ramping up, and coronavirus may have even intensified the animosity that has been building between the two countries for some time. But rescuing the economy from coronavirus has also stretched government finances to the limit, and it looks like in many Western countries spending cuts will be needed. Defence has often found itself on the block at times of distress like these. Yet worries that the current Cold War may turn into a hot war at some point may protect defence spending from the bureaucrats in Westminster and Washington. And it may also mean smarter spending on new technology-led warfare, including drones, cyber warfare and even space forces, which you've just heard Donald Trump launching this week. On this week's Investment Hour, our defence correspondent, Nilushi Karunaratne, has put together a series of excellent interviews to help outline the changing outlook for the defence sector and what this means for investors, including Malcolm Chalmers, Deputy Director of the Royal United Services Institute. I think the most likely scenario is the defence budget will get a small real terms increase. And defence analyst Howard Wielden. I think we will have far more aggressive, positive actions towards spending on what we need to do in the future, which will be uh, space-related, it will be cyber-related. And Alex Janiu has spoken to Steve Wright, a former Airbus engineer and senior research fellow at the University of West England, to discuss the aerospace side of the industry. crucial thing to know about the simple aerospace market, and this is both one of its strengths and its weaknesses, is nothing happens quickly. I'm Megan Boxall. And I'm John Human. Welcome to the Investment Hour. One of the key questions moving out of this crisis is whether we will see defence cuts moving forward. The government borrowed a lot of money to keep the economy afloat during the peak of the COVID-19 crisis. As we head towards another downturn, the defence budget could be in the firing line if the government looks to make more savings or prioritise spending elsewhere. To shed some light on the issue, Nalushi spoke to Professor Malcolm Chalmers, Deputy Director of the Royal United Services Institute. Where I think the defence budget is relatively protected is that the Conservative Party in its manifesto committed to an annual real terms increase of 0.5% in the defence budget. And there's no indication so far that they're about to renege in that commitment. So I think the most likely scenario is the defence budget will get a small real terms increase, which is certainly not as good as some of the more favoured departments like health and, and policing, but it's not as bad as, as it has been in, in some previous reviews. Can I just ask if there's any comparison to what we saw in the wake of the last recession, how defence spending sort of changed over the past decade, if you like? Well, in 2010, when the Conservatives and Liberal Democrats came to power in a coalition and had a major post-crisis spending review, the defence budget suffered quite badly. It wasn't the worst hit department, but its, its budgets fell by around 9% in real terms over five years. And then in 2015, there was a, a, another review after the Conservatives got an overall majority. And broadly speaking, over the next five years, 2015 to 2020, the defence budget rose by just under 10%. So more or less got back to where it was in real terms at the beginning of the decade. And now it feels as if it's levelling out. The overall level uh, will be uh, just above uh, inflation. But because inflation is much lower 
because the rate of inflation is almost zero now, and you know, there's some, some possibility it might even become negative, a small real terms increase is also going to be a very small cash increase. And that's going to put some really serious pressure both on the personnel side and on, on the equipment side, which are the two basic bundles in, in the defence budget. We've now been joined by Nalushi. Thanks for that interview. A nice overview of what was going on right now. You mentioned cuts. And in the wake of a huge period of spending, there are going to be some big public sector cuts. Do you think defence is an easy sector to turn to when governments are looking for cuts? Because after many years of peace in the UK, it doesn't seem like a big deal to big parts of the voting population to make cuts in defence. I mean, in an ideal world, governments would be able to spend as much as they like on whatever they like. But that's obviously not how it works. And and particularly in times like these, something's got to give. So you can't take resources away from something like the NHS. Boris Johnson has promised that we're not going to return to austerity. So what's going to go? So, I mean, defence is a national priority. That's, you know, an undoubted fact. But it also makes an easy target. When you hear things like the MOD has a potential £13 billion shortfall in its budget, that implies waste and that there are savings to be made. So I'm not really surprised that the defence sector has come on the radar for cuts. And reading the, the um, news feature that you wrote this week, um, waste in procurement is one of the biggest things uh, that the government is looking at. Something that Boris Johnson's chief advisor, Dominic Cummings, I know is, uh, is perhaps being uh, thought to be looking at very closely. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a bugbear of his kind of waste in government in general, but particularly the MOD. He's sort of really anti-big, expensive equipment. He thinks we should be going for more sort of modernised, automated drones and things like that. So his role could be key in this review as to what actually happens to defence spending. I mean, even before the coronavirus shock to the economy arrived, the government announced it will be undertaking an integrated review into the UK's security, defence, development and foreign policy. While the pandemic saw the process postponed, it's now back up and running. Alongside a comprehensive spending review, it's likely to have big implications for the UK's defence spending and the wider industry. Here's defence analyst Howard Wielden with his thoughts on the matter and some other issues that might crop up. It is an integrated review. It is about defence. It is about security. And it is also about foreign office uh, foreign office policy. Uh, so it is very different than the ones that have gone before. And you could say uh, that all uh, that all defence and, and, uh, and security reviews should be based on foreign policy, but clearly in the past they haven't. Uh, do I think this this upcoming one will be any different than than uh, uh, than those that have gone before? Probably deep down I don't. But at least they're going to have a try, and they're looking at what uh, what all three working together, that's Home Office, Foreign Office and MOD, uh, need to do to work better together and to make the whole thing more, more efficient. And of course we mustn't uh, uh, forget that uh, uh, within all this is international development spending because that's been thrown into into the uh, into the Foreign Office pot as well. When you get the results of this review uh, at the end of this year or beginning of, uh, of next year, I'm not quite sure on the on the final timing of this, to be quite honest. But uh, obviously, it's being led by Dominic Cummings in in, in brackets. Uh, he's there and he will push forward what he wants. What sort of differences uh, do I think it will, will make? I think we will have far more aggressive, positive actions towards spending on what we need to do in the future, which will be uh, space related, it'll be cyber related, uh, all sorts of way, way things that we, we, we've been thinking about and we've already started. Uh, but but the future is about uh, autonomous systems. The future is about a very, very different attitude and approach to how we spend our money on defence than it was before. You know, clearly, 
the big factors in this in terms of cuts will be uh, first of all the army in terms of uh, in terms of personnel numbers bases the army have got bases uh, dotted around everywhere they need to be made to be more efficient of course the navy has got to find uh, ways of funding of funding what it's doing uh, and, and I think inevitably we will see a reduction in the number of surface surface ships, not necessarily uh, capital ships out of the uh, the existing plan. In other words, I think we will ultimately aim to retain 19 capital uh, capital ships. But in the meantime, before we've got the new Type 26s and the Type 31s, neither of which program I think will be impacted by uh, by, uh, by by defence cuts, uh, we might go down before we go back up again. Uh, so the navy has got to find new new ways of doing things, uh, and again, making itself more efficient. You've mentioned Dominic Cummings. Um, much has been made of his involvement in the process. Do you think he's the somewhat new variable for these reviews compared to previous reviews we've had? Well, there always seems to be somebody, uh, somebody that pops out of the the, the woodwork and and, uh, uh, and has things to say. I mean, if I go back to SDSR twenty ten, um, that relied uh, on the senior civil service who who weren't necessarily or didn't necessarily understand uh, defence, combining with uh, the, 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 the 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 academic organisations who always have a firm belief they're there to test and they're they're there to challenge. But I think they challenged a bit too far and they pushed. Uh, capability that we required down to a, a level which was uh, through their recommendations which was actually turned out to be not, uh, not acceptable. Dominic Cummings uh, is you know we would have elected government with a, with a large majority. Uh, defence as I've said earlier is a political choice. Uh, defence used to be the number one number two priority of government. It should be the number one two priority government but it clearly isn't. Uh, because it's a long time since we've been at war. Uh, we've got adversaries and, and they're increasing. We have issues. There are geopolitical issues emerging all over the world. Uh, it's going to get worse rather, rather than better in my, in my view. But Dominic Cummings uh, has, has come in. He's got to try and save money. Uh, isn't, you know, cut the, cut the funding. He's got to make sure that it's spent all wisely. Uh, and I'm very, I was very, very pleased when I read, um, and a lot of people condemned it, but I was very pleased when I saw that he was actually going to go out to various uh, army, army and navy uh, uh, and Royal Air Force uh, bases to actually understand uh, what they actually do. Because unless you understand what they do, how on earth can you improve or cut them? So, you, uh, so that that is actually you know, is pleasing. One of Dominic Cummings' criticisms is that the MOD tends to commission what he considers uh, overpriced bespoke kit rather than buying things off the shelf. In your opinion, is that a fair criticism? It's a fair criticism, but we know sovereign capability is hugely important. It's vital to a nation like ours. We're the sixth, arguably the sixth largest economy in the world. You know, we should be able to uh, to to afford uh, and to make the things that we need. Not all, not everything. We can't be all things to all men, but we should be able to to produce submarines. We should be able to produce ships. I think when we come back to this, the, you know, the, the, those accusations you mentioned, of course, they're talking about uh, carry. Uh, 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 in, you know, as just one example, uh, and the carrier was uh, over budget in the end. But they're brilliant. And why was it over budget? In part, it's because the MOD changed things. Remember, SDSR 2010. Uh, uh, decided that we wouldn't have uh, uh, the the, the Stovall aircraft, the, the, the Joint Strike Fighter Stovall aircraft. Well, we would we would uh, 
we would put uh, cats and traps on the on the carriers. Well, that was an extra billion pounds uh, if we were going to do it, uh, and that delayed the project. Uh, it caused a lot of extra money to be uh, to be spent, only for us to reverse back to the original uh, uh, Labour government decision of, of, of buying of buying stove, you know, stove all the B the B variant. Uh, it, it's failed in many in many in many respects, but it's a lot better. Procurement is a lot better today uh, than it ever was in the past. Obviously, this uh, review has to look forward, uh, but 2020 is sort of a, a year where a few big events are converging, like Brexit, like the US general election. How much do those types of things factors into the decision making here? Zero. Uh, I, I would say absolutely zero. The, the, the point is defence is a long-term game. So in the last review, we were talking about uh, about uh, uh, Future Force 20, 2025. Now we'll be talking about Future Force uh, 2030. That's 10 years away. So because defence requires that amount of time to to organise itself to provide what it is we, we need it. We buy, of course, a lot of equipment from uh, from uh, from America, as we're seeing with the PX are coming into uh, in, uh, into service now, and the the E seven E seven as uh, as well, replacing our Sentry aircraft. We'll lose Sentinel, I think, in the uh, in the in 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 the, the, the next round of defence cuts because that decision was really taken in, in twenty in twenty fifteen. Uh, so, uh, so it's just an extension of that. But you know, big things are happening. But some of them relate to what were decisions that were taken in 2015, uh, uh, and the the actions of that happened between 2020 and 2025. I don't think Brexit makes any difference whatsoever. Uh, one caveat I would make from that is, uh, to, and, and I think we've seen a watering down in terms of uh, EU uh, attitudes towards uh, uh, what they can afford to spend on a European defence. Uh, so uh, I, I don't want to see NATO damaged in any shape or form by what the uh, what the rest of the EU does at the moment. I think because of what's happened uh, over the over the past uh, uh, six months between COVID and Brexit, because obviously the EU is losing a lot of funding from uh, from the UK. Uh, there's been somewhat a, a backtracking in terms of uh, what the Europeans, uh, 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 what the continental Europeans uh, want to do on their own. Uh, but Brexit doesn't make any uh, any difference at all. What about the changed role of the US on the global stage under Donald Trump? Obviously, we've seen increased tensions uh, with China. Uh, we've sort of seen his attitudes towards NATO. But obviously, these reviews take a longer term um, vision, as you've said. How does that sort of thing factor in? Well, I think the, uh, the, the yes, he, he certainly rattled the cage on on uh, on, on NATO. Uh, he's forced NATO to look at look at itself and indeed uh, uh, you know, reconsider its longer term future in, in the sense of how it's funded. Uh, America is clearly not going to continue paying the high the highest burden of NATO of NATO costs. So all uh, member countries. Uh, will have to pay an in, an in, an increased cost, and I think that will. Uh, I take that. I take that for uh, for granted. Uh, in terms of uh, of U.S. foreign policy, well, the one thing about U.S. foreign policy is we get asked to support it. We don't have to support it, uh, and uh, and there were instances of that going back through history. We didn't support. Um, we didn't. We went against what they did in Vietnam, but we didn't actually uh, support it. We had no no active involvement in uh, in Vietnam, and there will be decisions 
uh, uh, made like that again. And again, part of the thing that will come out of this review is processes. Where do we want to be in the world? What is it we want to do? We want to do. What can we afford to do? Uh, uh, what can we afford not to do? We must always, if any member, any NATO member country is threatened, we must always be there to support it. That's why we're, you know, our people are in Lithuania and Estonia and, uh, uh, and, and, and other places, supporting them, supporting their freedoms. To, to pick up on Tempest, is that the sort of direction you think will move more in? Because it's sort of a yeah. collaborative attempt and there'll be a larger market for these things. It is a collaborative attempt, and there may well be uh, more partners in it. But I think the, the UK is quite different. As I mentioned to you before, sovereign capability is very, very crucial to to the UK. Maintaining it uh, is very crucial to the UK. It's also important that we don't ignore the export capability here. Uh, so, I mean, um, um, Type 26 has been a perfect example of where we've seen we may not be making them in the UK, uh, but but Australia is is is, is building. And in this case, it's BA system. Uh, uh, in Australia that will be building them and Canada's uh, taken the same design as well uh, so there's an involvement over there so that's a great uh, example of something that we, we can design uh, and and then they can have a, vari- a variant of it they can do what they want to it in terms of uh, uh, additional design or, or, or change but, but the UK is very very good at this sort of thing and we, we need to ensure that we, main- that we maintain that the companies we've got here some of the service companies are questionable, uh, but I think in terms of manufacturing, we are absolutely and utterly brilliant. And by manufacturing, I'm talking about ship making, submarine making, and indeed aero engine making. Rolls Royce uh, makes makes the, makes the military engines for, for for Typhoon. Has a big involvement in Tempest. Uh, and Tempest is very very important to showing uh, uh, the rest of the world that we are we are. We are, we are there, we are able to do this, and I think it, it will be a great success. It's a long way off yet, but I think it will be a great success. Uh, lots of interesting stuff there. Howard certainly knows his stuff. Uh, the big question for investors, though, is how all this translates into investment opportunities, which is something you've talked to Alex Janu about. Let's have a listen. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm oh, very well, Nilishi. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. So, you wrote a feature last year about the defence sector. It's called Get Defensive, and I recommend everyone go and read it because it's really great. Um, while the landscape has seen some changes since then, you picked up on some key trends in that feature that seem like they might be turbocharged in a post-COVID world. One of them was about the future of warfare and this kind of shift away from conventional battles. I was wondering if I could just get your take on what do you think are some of the key growth areas and what companies might sort of benefit from this shift? Yeah, so I think if we step back and we look at the way that certainly in the UK we're addressing defence, uh, much has been made of the Prime Minister's chief advisor, Dominic Cummings, and his approach to defence. There's been a lot of interesting media reporting on the abandonment of real cut legacy elements of our defence capabilities. So units like the Parachute Regiment and the Royal Marines uh, are being talked about being cut down. Principally because, you know, when was the last time we jumped into battle or conducted a beach raid? Um, these are symbols and kind of a lot of people view these as symbols of projecting power. But in terms of modern warfare, they're not really seen as relevant anymore. In terms of where we're heading, well, cyber is the obvious one. And BAE systems in particular are very hot, I know, on the cyber warfare space. 
even looking in the current climate with coronavirus, the UK are 95% sure that Russia attempted a hack of coronavirus vaccine research on the UK, US and Canada. That really stresses the importance of having a strong uh, cyber defence capability. Coronavirus vaccine may well end up being the most valuable commodity in the world um, and we won't really be able to defend it with tanks and the more kind of conventional warfare apparatus that we're used to. Drones, similarly, again, kind of reducing the need to put humans on the battlefield. Uh, drones, I think, really came to the forefront of the public conscience uh, with the Gatwick airport scandal a couple of years ago. God, that feels like a long time ago. And the company there to look at is Cohort. Cohort are a kind of defence tech company. They acquired a business called Chess uh, a couple of years ago, um, who later claimed success in terms of dealing with that uh, problem. Um and I guess nuclear support, you know, nuclear, the role of nuclear is, is not something that's been discussed you know, that frequently, uh, but it remains, remains, I think, in a key and essential part of the UK's defence and the UK maintaining its presence on the national stage. And, and obviously, there's a lot of cooperation with the US, which is, you know, the world's biggest defence market uh, in these areas. The other one, which I touch on actually as well, um, in that space, um, you'll remember, again, a few years ago, President Donald Trump, I think, was derided with the launch of the US Space Force. But actually, again, we've seen potential breakouts of conflict in space. I think Russia, again, has been accused of launching a missile uh, or testing a missile in space. And look at the value of technology and how much of our infrastructure depends on tech uh, in space. So obviously protecting that, that, that area is key. So that, you know, that's where we'll, I think, see earnings growth come from in the future. Again, BAE systems are one for investors to look for. In that respect, and in terms of looking away, well, you know, companies like Babcock, who, you know, we have, I know you're pretty bearish on, on Babcock as well, what kind of conventional warfare, the role of big battleships. And I would, I would just say, you know, a lot of defense companies will make a lot of, you know, we've put parts on this new car or tank and ship. And yes, companies like Babcock have fairly unique, unique capabilities that give them what we call an economic moat. An advantage over other companies, but I really don't see much potential in the long term. And we'll come to the long term because this is, and it's important to look at this space with a long term investor perspective. Uh, earnings aren't achieved in the short term here. I think you're absolutely right. It's definitely about kind of the balance of equipment moving forward as well, because obviously the MOD is dealing with this massive shortfall. So they're under pressure about, you know, making sure they're spending efficiently and then moving towards these kind of more modern capabilities. And that has to come at the expense of something, i.e. kind of the conventional war aspect of things. Mm. That trade-off is actually something I spoke about with Professor Malcolm Chalmers, who's the Deputy Director of the Royal United Services Institute. One of the big issues that's emerging is how far you invest in new technology, uh, sometimes not entirely proven technology, uh, providing the, the capabilities, military capabilities that we expect we'll need in 2030 and beyond. And central to that debate is automation, how far you invest in new systems which rely less on people and rely on, on various forms of automation up to uh, uh, virtually fully autonomous weapon systems, uh, AI, uh, <clears throat> increased role for cyber uh, warfare, defensive and offensive uh, increased investment in space. There's a lot of talk about increased investment in space. Uh, and uh, you know, a good example of that might be in, in terms of the next generation of combat aircraft. Right now, we have our Typhoon F-35 are the backbone of combat aircraft. But in future, 
if you're looking at 2030, 2035 and beyond, then I think it's likely a much higher proportion of the Air Force is going to be unmanned and fewer manned. And what's the balance there? Uh, because you can save quite a lot of money if you take the pilot out of the system. An awful lot of money on the training budget, for example. And an awful lot of aircraft time right now is used to train the pilots rather than to be available for operations. So, so that's an area where uh, there will be some difficult trade-offs because if you invest a lot more in, in unmanned uh, vessels or aircraft, uh, or you invest more in space and cyber with a budget that's more or less static in real terms, you have to take something out. You have to take out some existing older equipment on land, sea and air and maybe some older ships, for example, uh, you probably have to make quite significant savings in personnel numbers to, to create the space for, for, for equipment investment. And how far do you go in that direction when some of those technologies are unproven? And also, I think, when there are understandably some strong constituencies defending existing weapon systems, existing ways of, of doing things. So it remains to be seen how radical they were. There's, they will be in when the review comes out. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, the from what from my experience of covering defence, the departments tend to queue up, don't they? Uh, you know, the army will get their, you know, their toys one year. The next year will be the air force. Next year will be the navy. They do sort of there's competition, but also an understanding um, of the way it works. And this is all being shaken up massively um, by the this you know this government. I mean, I touched on unmanned technologies in, in the form of drones, and another really interesting unmanned project is the tempest fighter i mean the Eurofighter typhoon uh which is a kind of a joint a, a really a symbol of cross countries a project led by ba systems uh we're seeing its successor being the tempest fighter that's ba systems leonardo rolls royce um and i mean what, what are your thoughts in terms of the earnings potential that investors might be able to generate via exposure to that project i think tempest is really interesting and and i think the difficult thing for an investor's perspective, it's, it's still in the very early stages. So it was launched in 2018, and I think so far the UK has invested about £2 billion in it, but it's obviously still in very early development stages. It's aiming to come into service by 2035, and it's meant to take over from the typhoon. And like you mentioned, it's it's being headed up by BAE Systems and a consortium of other companies. So you've got the likes of uh, Rolls-Royce, Kinetic, and um, GKN, which is owned by Melrose. One of the interesting things we're doing here is kind of this, this idea of joint development. So you spread the cost by uh, bringing on other countries. So Italy is joined. And I think we're close to kind of getting Sweden to come on board as well. The yeah. idea of it is you kind of create a bigger market for it as well. So the whole project becomes more cost effective. But it was interesting. I was talking to um, a defense analyst, Howard Wielden, and he said, while it's good, it's you also have to remember that we need to retain sovereign capability as well. So something that's unique to us you don't necessarily want to be developing something that's going to go to everyone sure and i guess another way of looking at this is in terms of the typhoon uh, the controversy surrounding the uk and ba systems relationship with saudi arabia um in that saudi is ba's like third biggest customer i mean the way these work these contracts work with saudi is that bae will sell its products to the uk government who will then sell them to saudi um there are a lot has been made of Saudi Arabia's role in the Yemen conflict for which they've used these typhoons. And actually Germany, which produces parts of the plane, simply refused to 
continue producing its parts. So obviously that's really debilitating to a project that where you're crossing borders um, if parts of the, of the kind of consortium aren't playing ball. So that is a real risk factor, I think. And in the point of sovereignty, I think you're absolutely right that it's important to be able to kind of retain these projects, complete control of these projects and not be vulnerable uh, to various political decisions made overseas i I think the the uk government and sort of temporary ban they did they did sort of temporary ban uh while they reviewed that relationship and and now they've come i think they've now removed that bae is kind of such an interesting case study because the us is the biggest market i think over 40 percent of their sales go to the us but it i think it's an even split actually between the uk and the middle east and when we say the middle east it's basically saudi arabia Mm. um and and like you've kind of mentioned that it, it really, more so than the kind of the other UK-listed com- defence companies, that's the one that kind of draws the attention in terms of, you know, ESG no-nos. Yeah, definitely. When I when I covered this, and I actually covered when that ban was imposed, looking around the defence sector, BAE are the only one now with se- like serious exposure to the Middle East. I mean, it's seen as a huge, it is a huge market, um, but it does in- very much increase the ESG uh, risk associated with BAE, and you only need to look at various allegations made by former engineers of BAE uh, regarding practices and their involvement in the war there, um, which the, com- the company have in very sense denied. Um, I think one other very interesting aspect of defence in the future is, is the role of special forces. So I touched on the abandonment of more kind of conventional land uh, troops, uh, but I think it's fair to say that special forces are being viewed as, again, a kind of growth opportunity. And, and the company, that really, which I think you and I are both big fans of, Avon Rubber, uh, which, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, so they do kind of special respiratory masks. The milk machines are gone, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're, selling, sold them. they're, they're selling, selling the milk ones. This is the great... always, it was always such a random business. I know it was a legacy business, but mm. it was great. It was like, we do masks and milk. This is the great thing about interviewing Avon Rubber, and you'd be talking about the SAS for 10 minutes with the chief executive, and then you go, and now on to cows. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, the really interesting thing there, um, they really, I, talk, I touched on economic moats, where Avon Rubber make these respiratory masks uh, for specialist divers. Uh, and they've told me in the past that there's only probably about 4,000 to 5,000 of these divers in the world. Um, and so as a result, each mask costs $75,000 and calculates wow. an addressable market, therefore, of $375 million, which doesn't sound like a big market, but when it's basically yours, that's fantastic. And, and the shares have, have done really well, um, Avon, and I think they'll continue to do well, particularly in the absence of milk. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a um, graph in the um, news feature this week that shows the uh, performance of these defence companies relative to the FTSE 350, and Avon Rubber has just completely outshone the rest of them. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I think that's a company well worth paying the premium for. Okay. Um, moving on to other things you kind of picked up in your defence feature from November. One of them was about the future of aerospace. And you looked at companies like Megit and Senior and Rolls-Royce. And you fast forward to now, and those companies just seem to be facing a completely different world right now. Give us a sense of what's changed in the whole aviation aerospace sector. Well, I think it's fairly obvious uh just what has happened in terms of airlines and travel restrictions, uh, compounding issues already. Uh, certainly we saw with the, issue, the, the grounded 737 MAX produced by Boeing. That was after two crashes. To find out more about the impact on the supply chain, I spoke to Dr. Steve Wright, uh, who's a former Airbus engineer and a senior research fellow at the University of the West of England. Steve, uh, describe the toll this pandemic has taken on the civil aerospace supply chain. Yes, well... 
clearly the, the, the immediate customer-facing organisations are having an absolute disaster, um, and we're seeing layoffs there already. I'm particularly thinking about the airlines, but then we see people a little bit further down the f- supply chain. So the first-line support organisations, MROs as their maintenance, repair and overhaul. So they'll be also starting to see a ripple but the crucial thing to know about civil aerospace market, and this is both one of its strengths and its weaknesses, is nothing happens quickly. It's a huge end-to-end supply chain. So you've got the customer to airliner to airframer to vendor. So to put it in context, the development of a new aircraft can take typically about eight years. So that provides a huge cushion to those people who are further down the supply chain. So the GE Aviations, the Rolls-Royce to a lesser extent, things like that. But the people who are making the boxes, the materials that go on that, they're, they're buffered slightly. But the flip side's also true because the long-term pain will play out more slowly. So when I say, when I say pain, these are the things that sort of silently won't happen, the silent victims. So a good example of that was quite early on. I was expecting, uh-oh, here we go, some of the R&D projects, the research and development projects is going to start getting cut. And in fact, that started happening way sooner than I was expecting. And what will falling airplane production volumes mean for suppliers? Yeah, again, it's the same thing, where the, there's this huge buffering effect within the market. Um, typically, the the market has these huge backlogs. Um, the numbers are usually in the thousands. So typically, um, the airliners are built, the air framers are booked out years in advance. And so they're very much hedged in that sense. They've got this buffer. So we're all right for the time being. This isn't an existential threat to the industry, but we'll see a dip. So if you were investing... Aerospace is what it's always been. It's been a relative blue chip in that you're playing a long game over a series of of five to 10, even 20 years. It's important to understand that that it will ripple through slowly. But similarly, the the take-up at the end of it all will happen. In the short term, we're looking about two years of serious pain. And I have to say, this this is in my career in aerospace. I started in aerospace in 1989, and this is the fourth instance of this vast hit that's happened. The first one was in the early 90s, big recession then. The next one was the 9-11 fallout. Then there was the 2008 fallout. And now we've got the COVID hit as well. So this is number four for me. And this is far and away the biggest that I can see. Mm. And we're witnessing trends in aerospace design such as shift towards more narrow-bodied aircraft. I mean, what will that mm-hmm. mean to suppliers? Now, this is, this is the most interesting question of all. This is the one I love answering. It's where it gets really interesting because this is, this is where you get an opportunity to take a step back and think about how the market works already. The large, the wide-body market is pretty much a duopoly between Boeing and Airbus worldwide. And and that's because of these absolutely eye-watering numbers it takes to develop a new aircraft. Um, And so the interesting thing about the narrow-body market is is that it's it's usually the entry point for anybody who wants to try and 
take on the duopoly, as I think of it, capital T, capital D, um, head on. Um, and it's interesting, in the last few years, the Canadians have tried it and the Brazilians have tried it, probably aware of Canada and Embraer from, from Brazil. And they've both had a go and, frankly, been seen off the market by the duopoly, which only shows how colossal the costs are. We're even getting into the narrow-body market. It's really, really expensive. So the big question here, in my mind, is the Chinese. So if you want to do some Googling, go and look up a thing called the Comac C919. If you Google that, you'll see it looks uncannily like an A320 or a Boeing 737. And that's not surprising. It's not, it's not a case of um, industrial espionage or anything. It's, you know, it's the same shape because for the same reason that a fish, and a, a fish and a dolphin are the same shape. It's driven by the physics. And technologically, this aircraft isn't really very interesting. It's almost a 1980s technology of the airframe and a load of reused Western vendor parts. But here's the thing. Comac have been having huge technical and certification issues driving this C919 through. And I can't help thinking that if this was a Western project, a Western-based project, they would have pulled the plug by now. Um, but the Chinese have got the political will and the financial backing to take this on as a national and, and global level project. And so they'll see it through. And this could be the opportunity for them to start getting a head, headway into that market. So it gives, it's a really interesting little finally, it could be the thing that breaks open the, the duopoly, which has been going for about 30 years now. So the thing to think about is if we think of Comac as a threat to, to the market uh, in terms of change, think about they're pretty much where Airbus was in the 1970s. And so if you think about that, you only have to know what happened to McDonnell Douglas. They got driven out of the market. Um, and, and so the, the duopoly, ironically, was reestablished. But whether there could be a three-way split in the market in the future is a really, really interesting question from an investment point of view. One of the things that Dr. Wright mentioned was that there's sort of this buffering or sort of delayed impact, you like, if down the supply chain. Is that what we're actually seeing with companies right now? Yeah, I mean, it's very easy for all of us to look at what's earnings figures and the parlous state of the aviation industry, panic uh, and sell. Uh, I mean, he, Dr. Steve Wright obviously talks about the long term investment sense, and, and I think that's that that's reasonable. Uh, I mean, one company that I've looked at uh, in great detail recently is Bodycoat. Now, Bodycoat produce thermal processing services, uh, both for the aerospace and automotive markets. Um, the last of which has obviously been in like a longer structural, kind of structural long-term decline. Um, but they produce parts for engines, including the 737 Max. They have, however, said that the shift to narrow-bodied engines does play to their strength. They've got more parts per engine and greater sort of value of revenue per engine um but i mean for me personally i think that body coats recovery still looks a long way away you've touched on senior in recent days haven't you nalushi yeah i mean senior i think 75 percent of its sales come from aerospace and it's actually an interesting contrast if you take the defense companies that have done well it's because 
the defense has done well in spite of kind of commercial aerospace. When you take senior, because it's got relatively less exposure to defense, that defense hasn't been able to uh, rescue it from this downturn that we're seeing uh, in civil aerospace. And to pick up on what you said kind of about the different aircraft, it's because I'm guessing that uh, the wide body aircraft are more to do with this long haul travel, which is expected mm. to take longer to recover than kind of these short haul domestic flights. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, you know, a- airlines are looking to bring in narrow bodied aircraft. They're more efficient. They last longer. Uh, look for, in terms of Airbus, the A321 and the A320. And for Boeing, is the 737 MAX, which was really heralded as a wonder plane. And it's, it's so sad what's happened there. Obviously, the most, the, the most tragic point being the crashes, but also in terms of the potential here for airlines. I mean, Ryanair succeeded in deferring their delivery, some of their. 737 maxes um, and again obviously adds to the ESG credentials both of the airlines um, and the manufacturers. It was interesting from uh, Boeing's earnings their chief executive Dave Calhoun he actually said that they're basically getting a customer ringing them up each day and you know delaying or deferring an order that's kind of the the state of the industry right now Mm. and I mean once it hits Boeing it then feeds down to the through the entire supply chain. Yeah, I mean, I looked to at IAG, who reported a couple of weeks ago, uh, they were talking about a recovery in, pa- in passenger numbers to 2023, which is, that's been mirrored across by other airlines, but IATA, who are the trade body, have said it actually just go back to 2024. Uh, you're really, so, you know, visibility is incredibly difficult right now. I guess one thing to add is while we're seeing perhaps a more fragmented approach to dealing with opening up the economy during coronavirus, hospitality, etc., it, it seems quite hard to me to open that. I, I think that airlines, aviation, and tourism, that looks like a nationally controlled, well, an internationally controlled, really, uh, uh, kind of phenomenon. So it's going to be a lot harder to restore aviation, and it's going to be very, very difficult, particularly with, with, with the possible outbreak of a second wave of coronavirus. It does kind of seem right now anyway that we are looking at a multi-year downturn. Even for the airlines, are there any sort of players here or are they are they all just sales right now? Um, we quite like Ryanair. Ryanair re- pretty well capitalised and I think low budget is the way to look. I mean, just anecdotally, I've seen people flying to near de- destinations in, in Europe, whereas long-haul flights look a long way off, and particularly destinations like the US, and Brazil look pretty unfeasible, so IAG um, that kind of rules them out. Um, and also, you know, we obviously seen that Virgin Atlantic have filed for bankruptcy. So while you know airline shares were doing well in recent days off the back of the news from EasyJet and the recovery in their capacity, um, there is felt you know it's not looking great. Although that said, Virgin are direct competitive IAG, so maybe that's good for them. I mean, a rather tenuous link to pick up from from Virgin is Virgin Galactic, and they're doing a new um, partnership with Rolls Royce. Um, Rolls Royce just isn't in a good place at all right now. I mean, Doctor Wright he spoke about kind of this buffering effect, but for Rolls Royce, it's much more of an immediate impact because their re- a lot of their revenue relies on engine flying hours. So basically, they make these engines at a loss, and the idea is that they collect the revenue over the life of the engine to kind of make up for that. So as soon as these planes are grounded, that immediately fed into uh, Rolls-Royce's earnings and cash flow. 
Yeah, so. and the, the aftermarket as well. It's so important, the spare parts and the maintenance. It's just so important to them. And they've had their own engine problems as well in recent parts through blade deterioration. So you have to look beyond coronavirus and just think this is a company that's been a bad way for a long time now. I think the interesting thing about Rolls-Royce is it really does kind of straddle both aerospace and defense. Mm. So kind of in terms of investment opportunities in the defense sector, how much do you think has kind of really changed since you last did your deep dive in November? Is, is there kind of a, do we have to be looking at this slightly differently now? Do we have to go deeper into kind of the balance between aerospace and defense now? Well, while it's correct, I think defense budgets will be under pressure. Those growth areas, I don't think have really changed. Geopolitical landscape remains fragile. Don't forget, you know, in January, we had Donald Trump ordering the killing of the Iranian general uh, Soleimani. Uh, we look like we we're on the cusp of a world war. So I think that in terms of investment case, defense versus civil aerospace, defense, in my view, is a much safer investment sphere, carries long lead times. If your investment objectives are for the next three to five years, probably look elsewhere. But defense carries really long lead times, are quite secure, quite, you know, quite secure orders, long visibility. Companies we've touched on, BAE, uh, Cohort, Avon Rubber for me, um, certainly the latter two are, are good prospects. In terms of civil aviation, it's just there's so much, you know, pardon the pun, so much up in the air, uh, both from the airline perspective and the suppliers. It's a really, really difficult place to be right now. And it's it's hard to really find any candidates, certainly in the, among the airlines uh, that would make good investment prospects. Well, thank you, Alex, for joining us. Thanks very much for having me on, Nalushi. Thanks for that, Nalushi. A really interesting conversation with Alex and actually with all your guests. One thing that hasn't been touched on yet is the current outlook based on geopolitical tensions. There are a few areas of the world that aren't in the midst of some sort of trauma. We probably shouldn't get John started on conspiracy theories. But what does this heightened tension mean for the outlook for defence? I mean, it's all very well on the one hand to try and argue that you don't have the money for defence right now with everything else that's going on. But you have to place that in the context of a threat environment. If anything, the world's become more dangerous since the onset of this pandemic. So if you look at before, it was bad enough with US trade war tension, US-China trade war tensions. And we look to be heading towards some kind of detente in that area. But the tit-for-tat rhetoric has increased. You've got everything that's going on with Huawei. Hong Kong came along. You've got uh, the Uyghur situation in Xinjiang. Now the TikTok controversy. And on top of that, China's sphere of influence particularly in Asia, but across the world, if you like, is increasing, and that's making the West rather uncomfortable. The South China Sea is becoming increasingly tense as different actors, including China, are vying for ownership of various different islands there. And that's actually potentially a source for hot conflict, you know, actual war in that region. And then you've got an increasingly emboldened Russia. I mean, I think Alex mentioned that they've been accused of launching a weapon in space. So there's two fronts here now. And, I mean, stepping even further back, you've got the changing role of the U.S. as well. We're all used to the U.S. US kind of being the world's policeman. But under, under Donald Trump, they've kind of retreated from that role as the global uh, guarantor of security. And that leaves us allies with a dilemma. I mean, particularly NATO. You just take what happened recently with Donald Trump announcing that they're going to uh, withdraw 12,000 troops from Germany and also move their European headquarters away. I mean, really, that's not a move to make NATO more secure. That's more sort of a a petty move on Trump's part with his kind of ongoing feud with Angela Merkel and his sort of bugbear about um, his spending, keeping that commitment of 2% of GDP. 
But I mean, what kind of message does that move send to countries typically reliant on the US for protection? At the same time, what kind of message does it send to Russia? And even if, you know, some people are banking on Joe Biden getting elected and the situation changing, but I don't think it really does because I think this has caused sort of permanent harm, if you like, to the relations between US, the US and its allies. It sent a message that we can't fully rely on the US anymore. So it's not going to be back to business as usual. So those people considering making cuts will also have at the back or even the front of their mind that actually we've got to consider this a little more carefully because the situation has changed. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Germany because, you know, its failure to hit its 2% of GDP uh, defence spending target has, has been a, a big bugbear, not just with the US, but with, with other countries as well, including the UK. You know, America's, America's withdrawal there, I mean, perhaps, perhaps this will encourage them to actually start hitting that 2% target if they are genuinely worried about the Russian threat. I mean, you, you think it would. Obviously, things become more difficult. I mean, everyone's GDP is going to go down, so proportionally their defence spending is going to go down as well. Um, but I, I think if they take the, the reasoning that, OK, we can't rely on the US as our protection, sole protection anymore, that should motivate them to spend more on defence. And maybe, indeed, they will be getting close to that 2% target. Now, we actually uh, hit that target ourselves, although there's some questions over, over that because I think uh, we also include uh, pension spending as part of that, whereas other countries don't in their calculations. I mean, there are, there are other areas of, of conflict as well. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned the South China Sea and China has been uh, essentially, essentially um, building islands on atolls there for, for quite some time. This is something that's been talked about as a potential, uh, you know, s- uh, sign uh, of, it, of its increasing, you know, expansionist tendencies. But, you know, uh, Taiwan is a potential flashpoint there. And China, China itself is you know, v- very aggressive in its rhetoric towards Taiwan. And, and there, are, there must be genuine worries about what's going to happen there. I mean, indeed. And also, you can kind of look at Hong Kong as a precursor to that. It's, they'll be looking very closely at how uh, you know, Western allies have reacted to its moves in Hong Kong as to how far they can kind of push that envelope. We didn't really get much beyond you know, strong rhetoric when it came to Hong Kong. So you have to kind of question whether... The U.S. and its allies are going to step up if they do something vis-a-vis Taiwan. What, what, what about in India? You know, there's there's been some uh, some flare-ups on the border there. I mean, that's that sort of that was kind of new to me when I heard it that uh, that, that China and, and and India would be aggressive towards each other on their borders. What's 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 behind that? I mean, I know some people you don't really pay attention to that. You you typically think of okay, India, Pakistan as the conflict going on in that region, and then you know you tend to go then out wider to the US, China and, and, and Russia as well. But that border is tense and there were there was a serious flare-up back in May. It's quietened down, but that's still a, a significant conflict that, if you like, you could argue it's waiting to happen. I suppose if all these things are just waiting to happen, then, yeah, it's not the right time to be making defence cuts anywhere. I mean, absolutely not. That's why defence is a long-term game, both in terms of investment, but in terms of you know defence planning as well. You cut for now and who knows, you know, next year, five years time, you could be involved in a conflict. And once you're in that conflict, you can't rectify, you know, spending that you should have made five years ago. So, I mean, defence planners will not take a a short term view. I guess it's more sort of how uh, treasuries react to this and politicians. Going back again to the the actual investment angle on this, I suppose with a lot of what industries involved in, they are bigger, long term, more long-term projects than they are necessarily the kind of cuts that can be made to the short-term, which is maybe reducing the size of the army, reducing the size of the navy, things like that. If For the private companies that are involved in it, it's 
a lot of them are big projects, aren't they? Absolutely. And so I think uh, some of them are a bit more secure. I mean, they'll, they'll be tightly written contracts and controls. So it's not like the MOD can just, you know, massively just slash through all these programs that they've committed to. There could be delays, however, and that could increase costs for, for some of the companies working on these programs. There are also the service companies, I suppose, who will be involved with things, you know, aspects of the personnel side, so they could see a nearer term hit. Um, but overall, perhaps the, the kind of capital spending should remain in place, although it could be over an elongated period of time. I, I used to cover defence some time ago, and, you know, looking back, uh, my, my worry of that some of those big sort of research uh, led projects, the big capital intensive projects, is, is what they're investing in. You know, turn out to be white elephants by the time they, they actually get to their sort of uh, operational start. You know, the, the Tempest program isn't due to, to come into to, uh, action until 2035, by which point That's everything right. could have changed again. Absolutely. I mean, this is the thing with defence you're making a bet on the future and a long time in the future as well. So we're hoping that, you know, Tempest is the way to go by the time it comes into service in 2035. I mean, who knows? But I mean, the, the idea of, you know, completely unmanned stealth fighter jets is slightly terrifying, but that, that seems to be the way things are going. You mentioned space earlier, and you and Alex spoke about, you know, the, the, the uh, rumours of, of, of Russian building, Russia building a space weapon. You know, space seems to be gaining a lot more interest than it has in the past. I think Elon Musk sent someone up in space very mm. recently. But, but, you know, a lot, of, a lot of countries are looking to the skies now. What's, what's going on there? I mean, it, it seems crazy when you, if you suggest the idea of a space war. I mean, I think Alex pointed out as well, everyone kind of laughed when Donald Trump came up with his space force. And even now, I tend to think of the Netflix series rather mm -hmm. than an actual <laughs> space fighting force. But it genuinely could be the way that things are going. Space is very important. It's important to all of us. I mean, we've all got our satellites up there. And if you think how devastating a space war could be, if you knock out those satellites, you essentially knock out global technology. Yes. So, I mean, you don't just want the fighting capability, you want the ability to kind of protect your assets up in space as well. That, that Netflix program, I think, is the timing of it's crazy because they must, when they were producing it, they must have... I mean, it's been produced as a bit of a joke, hasn't it? But actually, it's pretty timely if <laughs> wars in space are starting to be an actual... could be a potential thing. They've, uh, they've nailed their timing with that. Science fiction is yeah. often a very good guide to, to what's actually well, going to happen to the in future the future. Is, uh... Uh, not conspiracy theories, I hasten to add. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I just hope that uh, what the Americans have got going on behind the scenes is slightly less incompetent than Steve Carell yeah. was in that program. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Well, thanks, Nalushi. It's a, this is a really great series of interviews that you've put together. It's uh, really, really interesting and hopefully some good investment insight as well. Thanks for putting it together. Thank you. That's unfortunately it for this week, but before we sign off, let me talk you through what else we've got in this week's magazine. First up, I have to mention the new dedicated property section that we've introduced this week uh, with some very timely insights from our property editor, Emma Powell, given the huge shake-up of planning law the government has announced today. Results are back with a vengeance, with updates from many of the FTSE's biggest companies, AstraZeneca, Shell, HSBC and Diageo, among the 40-odd results write-ups. Um, it's fair to say it's a very mixed picture of COVID winners and losers, although the good news is that we are seeing the resumption of some dividends. In the PF and Funds section, Rosie Carr has put together a tour de force on the complex business of managing the pensions lifetime allowance, while Mary McDougall has taken a deep dive into Polar Capital Technology Trust to understand its strategy and the companies it holds. 
Sports. Mary's also done a great podcast with its manager, Ben Rogov, which you can hear via our podcast stream, along with Lauren Almeida's interview with Walter Price of the Allianz Technology Trust. It's an interesting contrast. On top of that, we have John Barron's latest investment trust update, along with all the usual comment, tips, educational features and news, including our thoughts on BP's surprise dividend cut. And finally, there is the main feature this week in which our economist, Chris Dello, asks what do the Beatles, riots and fish markets have to do with the stock market? The answer is that they all help illustrate a new economic theory of complexity, which could help explain why markets crash. Thanks to Nalushi for putting this podcast together, and to all of our guests, Howard Wilden, Malcolm Chalmers, Steve Wright, and our own Alex Janot. And thanks, as always, to my excellent co-host, Megan. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back again next week, uh, when we'll be taking a good look at the investment platform market. In the meantime, take care. See you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.